Short Rounds. Hey y'all, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I'm your host, James Hauser, and this is another one of those weeks where I do short rounds in lieu of full-length episodes. Now, you are getting two short rounds this week, so don't be too upset, and I think both of these subjects are super interesting. It'll come out to about an hour of listening time, which is still more than you get for most podcasts, right? So last week I talked about the British side of the American Revolution, and in the course of that episode I mentioned an event that I wanted to expand on, but didn't have time. It is one of the least known engagements of the Revolutionary War, at least to Americans, mostly because it took place, well, outside America. But despite its obscurity, the Great Siege of Gibraltar has the distinction of being one of the longest sieges in history. Heck, it lasted over three and a half years. But it was also, at some points, the largest engagement of the Revolutionary War, with more troops fighting for this one objective than for any other location in America, Europe, or the rest of the world. What made this little fortress on the Spanish coast so dang important? The Siege of Gibraltar was also dramatic, with some interesting twists and turns and crazy feats on both sides throughout the course of the Long Grapple. So today I'll be telling you in some detail about Gibraltar the Great Siege and why it was important. Not too much detail. I briefly weighed turning this into a full-length episode, but that's a lot to do for this one event. So let's hear all about the Great Siege of Gibraltar, 1779 to 1783. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There is some dark and bloody stuff going on. This podcast is PG-13, the language is clean, the content is not. All my sources will be posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so if you want to fact check me, feel free to do so. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are all my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's get to the rock, and then let's get to the fire. According to ancient Greek legend, the hero Hercules, or Heracles, either one is fine, was sailing west on his legendary labors when he found a mountain in his way. Hercules smashed a waterway through the mountain, dividing what are now Spain and North Africa forever, and adding ecological devastation to his already vast list of violent crimes. By splitting the mountain, the Greek hero created the northern and southern pillars of Hercules, regarded by many Greeks as marking the limits of the known world. The northern of these pillars, the northern one, on the southern coast of Spain within sight of the North African coast, is the Rock of Gibraltar. And the strait that Hercules allegedly cut, the waterway that connects the Mediterranean to the Atlantic, is the Strait of Gibraltar. Gibraltar is a weird little place. It's a narrow little spit of land sticking out like a hangnail from the Spanish coast, surrounded to the west, east, and south by the Mediterranean, connected to the Spanish mainland by a narrow, sandy causeway to the north. The majority of the peninsula is taken up by a massive mountain, a big, lonely crag that towers over everything around it, the Rock of Gibraltar. The rock is 1,398 feet high, just a little bit shorter than the Empire State Building. The limestone cliffs make it unscalable from almost any direction, and the only really inhabitable areas of Gibraltar are the small flat strips in the south and west, where the town, fortress, and port facilities have always been. But Gibraltar is another one of those wonderful little strategic choke points we keep talking about. We've talked about a bunch of these. The Khyber Pass, Malta, Stirling Bridge, and Gibraltar. 
There are only 14 miles between the rock and the coast, African coast. Any ship that ever passes from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic, one of the most well-traveled trade routes in the world, passes within eyeshot of Gibraltar. From Gibraltar, any country with a strong navy can control access between these two seas, or control crossings between Europe and Africa. It is primo strategic real estate. In 711 AD, somewhere near the northern pillar of Hercules, the Muslim general Tariq ibn Ziyad crossed over into Europe to establish Moorish control of Spain. Ever since, Muslims have called this site the Mount of Tariq, or Jabal Tariq, which gives us the modern name Gibraltar, Jabal Tariq, Gibraltar. The fortress of Gibraltar underwent no less than 10 different sieges throughout the Middle Ages until it was taken and held by Spain in 1467. Then in 1704, during the War of the Spanish Succession, the Royal Navy came calling. That's the British. You know what they're going to do. This is your land? No, this is my land now. On August 4th, 1704, the British landed, captured the surprisingly poorly defended Gibraltar, and turned it into their new Mediterranean outpost. The Spanish tried and failed to recapture it, but the peace treaty in 1713 confirmed British possession of the Rock of Gibraltar, as well as the Spanish island of Minorca in the western Mediterranean, which we've talked about before. Remember, Minorca was the island that John Bing was trying to rescue before he was executed to encourage the others. From this point on, Gibraltar was one of the most critical bases of the Royal Navy, the keystone of every British strategy in the Mediterranean up until the present day. Gibraltar and Minorca created a very uncomfortable new reality for France and Spain, since now the Royal Navy had bases to operate against their newly vulnerable Mediterranean coasts. Spain desperately wanted Gibraltar back. The British presence on their coastline was a constant insult, a nuisance, stolen land that had to be reclaimed. Every single diplomatic crisis that arose in Europe had the Spanish wondering if this would be their opportunity to get Gibraltar back, to purge the rotten English from their coastline. The Spanish tried to retake Gibraltar in 1720 and 1727, but the British were able to hold the rock. Now, there were debates in London over whether Gibraltar was ultimately worth holding. Holding it was really expensive. Putting a lot of troops in there and a lot of fortresses was expensive. And it was really far from Britain, difficult to defend. But its strategic importance won out. Over the years, the governors of Gibraltar built modern fortresses on the peninsula. Large stone walls and ramparts and bastions stocked with modern artillery and naval stores. In the process, the fortress town of Gibraltar became one of the weirdest communities in Europe. The majority of its inhabitants were soldiers, and many soldiers' wives and children were part of the little garrison community. There were also significant numbers of Italians and Jewish people, in addition to Englishmen and Spaniards. Gibraltar's most unusual inhabitants were and are the Barbary macaques, a small population of monkeys that live on and around the rock, the only wild monkey population in Europe. During times of peace, British officers crossed the border with Spain on a regular basis to attend balls and parties with their Spanish counterparts. During times of war, though, Gibraltar would be isolated, hundreds of miles away from the closest outside support. And war was coming. Spain had been trying to get Gibraltar back for 75 years when it seemed like they got their chance with the American Revolution. The British were bogged down in the American quagmire, and their army and navy were stretched to the limit. 
this was the best opportunity Spain would ever have to get Gibraltar back. Now, they were willing to accomplish this peacefully. The Spanish offered to stay out of the war in 1778 if the British handed over Gibraltar or Minorca. Like, hey, we won't jump on you with everybody else if you just give us what we want. Since Britain already had its hands full with the Americans and the French, that might have been a smart thing to do. But they refused. So it's not exaggerating to say that Britain risked losing America in order to keep Gibraltar, one of the most important parts of their empire. When Spain decided to enter the Revolutionary War, it committed to sending forces to the Caribbean and help to America, blah, 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 blah. But every eye in Spain was really fixed on Gibraltar. On June 16, 1779, the Spanish government formally declared war on Great Britain, and Gibraltar was officially cut off by land. The tiny little land border, that strip of sand, was closed off. And soon a Spanish naval squadron hovered off the coast of Gibraltar to cut it off by sea. Spain would focus most of its energy throughout the Revolutionary War on forcing the British off the rock. The Great Siege of Gibraltar would be a totally different animal from the Great Siege of Malta, which we talked about back in September. Both were epic, but different kinds of epic. Gibraltar would never match Malta for intensity or sheer chaos. It wasn't all fighting all the time like Malta was. There was none of that weird excessive brutality. There was very little hand-to-hand combat. There would be weeks or months at a time where very little happened at all, and then days of absolute hellfire artillery duels. Some of the bombardments from either side would rival Malta in sheer weight of flying metal, but Gibraltar was a much stronger fortress than Malta, and the Spanish could never really surround it due to its position, which was what made it such a strong fortress. What made the Siege of Gibraltar unusual was its length. It essentially lasted from the moment Spain entered the American Revolutionary War to the moment they left it. The British garrison of Gibraltar was 5,382 strong when the war began, a mixture of some British regiments and some German regiments from Hanover. Remember that uh, the kings of Britain are also the electors of Hanover. That's why they're the Hanoverian dynasty. So they're able to pull troops out of Germany from Hanover, use them to back up the British army. The Hanoverians weren't allowed to go to America because Hanover wasn't at war with America, but Britain sent them to Gibraltar to free up other units that could go to America. And despite what you might think, why would German troops be willing to hold on to a piece of Spain for England? Like, why would, what's their motivation? Everyone agreed that the Germans were among the best disciplined and most professional troops on the rock. But the backbone of Gibraltar's defenses would be its 122 engineers and 485 men of the Royal Artillery, who repaired the fortress and manned the guns throughout the long siege. All these troops on the rock would have to share it with about 3,200 civilians and 1,500 dependents, wives and children of the garrison's men. Gibraltar's garrison commander was Lieutenant General George Augustus Elliott, a salty war veteran in his early 60s who had been wounded as a junior officer at the Battle of Fontenoy under the Duke of Cumberland. He had spent much of his career in the cavalry, but had doubled as an engineer officer and knew the art of siege warfare inside and out. Elliot was a bit of a health nut. He was a vegetarian and refused to drink anything but water, which was very unusual for a very boozy time period. Elliot was strict and tough, a man who had the respect, if not the love, of those who served under him. He was also, um, anti-vax. He didn't believe in smallpox inoculation, which, to be fair to him, was still relatively new and not at all fun for the person who got it. But in most ways, he was the right man for the job. 
But Elliot's men were stuck on the rock for years, and boredom, sickness, and most of all, hunger would make it an outright ordeal. Gibraltar was not self-sustaining food-wise. There was almost nowhere to plant anything, and the Spanish naval blockade prevented normal supply shipments. Privateers from North Africa or other European countries might try to slip through the blockade and deliver much-needed food or supplies to the rock, but Spanish gunfire or ships often managed to catch them or sink them. In the meantime, food ran short. Very short. Rations were slim and only got slimmer as time went on. Soldiers tightened their belts, and their wives and children scraped pathetic gardens out of the barren soil. Even if no one starved, malnutrition and weakness became an enormous problem for the defenders of the rock. And this got worse when diseases started to take their toll. Smallpox hit the rock multiple times, killing hundreds, and the lack of fresh fruit or vegetables caused many inhabitants to suffer from scurvy. Now, people in the late 18th century didn't understand what vitamins were, so they didn't know why eating lemons or limes kept scurvy from happening. They just knew that it did. A few privateers brought in citrus fruits during some of the darkest days of scurvy, and this saved hundreds of lives. The Spanish plan for taking Gibraltar started out slow. The beginning of the siege was only marked by the closing of the border without a shot being fired, and Spanish troops assembled slowly in the areas to the north of the rock. They began to build fortifications and siege batteries to bombard Gibraltar, but they took their sweet time about it. It would be the British who fired the first major salvo of the siege at the Spanish siege lines. Mrs. Skinner, a young woman who was newly wed to a British soldier, fired the first round from a 24-pounder gun that had been dragged with great effort to the top of the rock. The Spanish work continued slowly, surprisingly slowly, considering they'd been waiting to do this for so long to take Gibraltar. The issue was that any frontal assault on the fortress, something like the Ottomans had tried against Malta, would be an inevitable bloodbath. Gibraltar was just too strong and too well situated. The rock would either have to be reduced by long, extensive artillery bombardment before any assault, or would have to be starved out. And the Spanish were more than happy to tighten the blockade on Gibraltar until its garrison had no choice but to surrender from lack of food. And as we've seen, that was a very real danger. The survival of Gibraltar could only be sustained by large British convoys, and since they had to get through the blockade, each relief of Gibraltar would be a major operation, like a large, dangerous DoorDash delivery involving dozens of sailing ships. The first relief of Gibraltar came in January 1780. General Elliot had sent a message to Britain by fast ship that if he didn't get a resupply mission soon, he would have to surrender. London sent Admiral George Rodney with 21 ships of the line to escort a massive convoy of supply ships through the Spanish blockade. He also brought a battalion of the Mackenzie Highlanders as reinforcements for the rock. Rodney was confronted by the Spanish Navy, but he smashed Admiral Juan de Langara aside in the moonlight battle of Cape St. Vincent on January 16th. De Langara's ship was sunk and he was taken prisoner. Cheers greeted the Navy as it came into Gibraltar, and two special visitors came ashore along with Admiral Rodney. One was the captive de Langara, and the other was Prince William Henry, the 15-year-old son of King George III, who was serving as a midshipman on board the HMS Prince George. William Henry's visit raised the morale of Gibraltar's garrison and greatly impressed Juan de Langara, who commented that, Well does Great Britain merit the empire of the sea, when the humblest stations in her navy are supported by princes of the blood. 
Elliot, for his part, complained that Rodney hadn't brought more liquor for his troops. He didn't drink himself, but he knew that the Redcoats could get testy without their no-no juice. Of course, the fact that a massive Royal Navy had to escort the supplies into Gibraltar meant this could not be an everyday thing. After Rodney left, the clock started ticking again until Gibraltar's next relief. It would be a year and three months a year and three months during which bags of breadcrumbs were being sold for top dollar. The second relief of Gibraltar arrived not a moment too soon. Admiral George Darby's fleet blasted their way in on April 12, 1781, with 100 storeships full of supplies. The fact that so many British ships were needed to resupply Gibraltar should also be noted, since a lot of these ships were not, say, in America, where they could have shielded Cornwallis' army from its defeat at Yorktown. Gibraltar contributed to that British overstretch we talked about last week. They had to allocate resources to saving Gibraltar along with everything else. The Spanish grew frustrated, since their favorite tactic of starvation was not working out. It was time to try something else. The Spanish began to unleash hurricane bombardments of the rock from multiple angles as their engineers dug trenches across the sandy causeway, closer and closer to the British walls. If this slow advance wasn't stopped, it could place the British port facilities in the Spanish line of fire, which would prevent any more supplies from coming in. The bombardments were intense. The Spanish had assembled 114 pieces of artillery, including 50 mortars, and after Darby's relief arrived, the hurricanes of fire and steel occurred on an almost daily basis. And as I've pointed out, British soldiers weren't the only ones who were under this bombardment. Kate Upton, a British army wife, not a supermodel, same name, different person, recalled experiencing several of these bombardments along with her children in her diary. A ball struck the rock against which I leaned and covered us with dust and stones. A few minutes after, a shell burst so near us I scarcely had time to run out of the way. A woman was cut in two as she was drawing on her stockings. These infernal spitfires can attack any quarter of the garrison as they please. But she was comforted by a soldier who, as he gestured her and her children to a bombproof shelter, told her cheerfully, Never fear, madam. If the damn dawns fire to eternity, they will never take the old rock. By the end of the siege, the old town of Gibraltar had been almost entirely destroyed, and most of the surviving civilians were living in tents on the southern tip of the peninsula. But with morale sinking and the new trench lines threatening to cut Gibraltar off by sea, General Elliot and his officers decided to stage a sortie, which is a raid by a garrison on the enemy's siege lines. The sortie came on November 27, 1781, one month after Cornwallis's surrender at Yorktown. Almost half of Gibraltar's garrison, including Highlanders, Germans, and British Grenadiers, 2,400 men in all, crept out under cover of darkness. Striking in three columns, they took the lightly held Spanish trenches by surprise. They sabotaged the artillery, set fire to the ammunition, ruined the outer siege works, then hustled back into the rock. Spanish reinforcements arrived just in time to watch 14 months of work go up in flames. The sortie of November 27th helped save the rock from being pounded to rubble. Now the Spanish were getting desperate. Peace negotiations were beginning in Paris after the siege of Yorktown had been lost, and the Spanish window of opportunity to capture Gibraltar was closing. In February 1782, a French and Spanish force under French General Louis de Crillon captured Minorca. 
This freed up French forces, and General de Crillon arrived with these forces to take charge at Gibraltar. It was time to make an all-out effort to conquer the rock. At its heart, Gibraltar had been an artillery and engineering duel. The British had carried out multiple innovations, including a new type of gun carriage that could angle a cannon low enough to fire from the vast elevation of the heights. British engineers had tunneled into the limestone of the rock itself to build new and better protected batteries. For the grand assault that was to come, the French engineer Jean d'Arcon now introduced yet another creative twist. He had some old warships converted into armored floating batteries, heavy ships that were reinforced with timber and wet sand. They even had a primitive fire extinguishing system of pipes and hoses. Darkon hoped that the floating batteries could reduce Gibraltar's defenses from the sea, pound it into rubble by surrounding it on all sides, clearing the way for a successful land assault. It would be the final attempt to reduce the rock by fire. The Grand Assault began on September 13, 1782. From the European point of view, on the European front, this was the climax of the American Revolutionary War. All eyes across Europe, British, French, and Spanish, were on Gibraltar. 80,000 spectators assembled on the hills behind the Spanish trenches, including several French princes. Over 40,000 French and Spanish troops assembled for the Grand Assault, and 49 ships of the line sailed off the coast, making it the largest engagement of the American Revolutionary War, not even in America, and with not an American soldier in sight. Darkon's floating batteries, manned by over 5,000 French and Spanish troops and carrying over 200 heavy guns, unleashed hell onto the British fortifications. This was the climax to the previous weeks of hellish artillery fire, so this must have seemed like the end of the world. The British returned fire, but their cannonballs, even the heavy 32-pounder balls, just bounced off the sides of the reinforced batteries. But as the day's fight wore on, the British unleashed an innovation of their own. This was Hot Shot, a cannonball heated red-hot in a furnace and then rolled up to the batteries in a sand-filled wheelbarrow. These so-called roast potatoes, which is what the soldiers called them, the soldiers never call anything by its proper name, were effective for more than just starting fires. Don't know if you guys know much about ballistics, but a hotter projectile travels faster. This improved the armor penetration of the hot shot, and they started to punch holes in the Spanish gunboats and light their powder magazines on fire. Even the fire extinguishing systems couldn't save Darkon's contraptions. By nightfall, all the floating batteries were burning or disabled. Around midnight sometime, the gunboat Taya Piedra exploded with a huge mushroom cloud, killing almost her entire crew, and the others soon followed. To their enormous credit, the British rowed boats into Gibraltar to try and save their enemies from near certain death, as one stranded vessel after another exploded. By 4 a.m., every floating battery was gone. The Grand Assault had seen 40,000 artillery rounds expended and cost around 1,500 Allied casualties. And for all that fire, the rock still held. The Grand Assault was the climax of the Siege of Gibraltar and a massive defeat for the French and Spanish. After this incident, actual fighting died down, with artillery bombardment falling off in intensity. The Spanish gave up all hope of taking Gibraltar by storm. But there was always the chance they could still starve it out. After all, it had been almost a year and a half since the last relief fleet had come to Gibraltar. Belts were tightened again. Food was short. 
Once again, all eyes of the peace talks were fixed on Gibraltar. If the British failed to relieve it in time, the rock could still fall to the Allies, and that would change everything at the peace conference. But on October 11th, the last relief of Gibraltar arrived. Admiral Richard Howe, who, if you'll remember, led the British Navy in the original invasion of America in 1776, led 35 ships of the line and a massive convoy of transports into the Straits of Gibraltar. He was carried by strong currents past the rock, overshooting the fortress, but on October 16th, he made a second attempt. The Royal Navy crashed past the Allied fleet to bring in 31 transport ships full of supplies, then shot their way back out on their return to Britain. Admiral Howe's brilliant heroic relief was the final real action of the Siege of Gibraltar and ended all hope of a Spanish victory. When the peace treaty was signed in February 1783, the Great Siege of Gibraltar came to a close, and the Redcoats still held the rock. Gibraltar had taken everything that France, Spain, or anyone else could throw at it for three years, seven months, and five days, from June 1779 to February 1783. This makes it one of the longest, possibly the longest, continuous siege in human history. The garrison and their families had endured starvation, disease, bombardment, and worst of all, boredom. But the rock had held out. This siege made the phrase Rock of Gibraltar a synonym for an untakeable stronghold, an unshakable bastion. And the Great Siege of Gibraltar was an outstanding victory for both the British Army and Royal Navy, and this counted for a lot. General Elliot and his soldiers were hailed as heroes, and Elliot was given the title of Baron Heathfield of Gibraltar. In the dark days of the Revolutionary War, when everything seemed to be going to hell for Great Britain, the persistence and survival of Gibraltar's garrison remained one of the only pieces of good news. It was a morale boost. It was one of the only bright spots in a disaster of a war. And the Great Siege made the Rock of Gibraltar a symbol of British pride and empire. There had been serious consideration before the siege to giving up Gibraltar is not worth holding, but after the enormous celebrations for the relief of Gibraltar, the enormous commemorations and paintings and, you know, tea kettles with little Gibraltar emblazoned on it, no one's going to give up Gibraltar now, not after 1783. Gibraltar was British and always would be. And it still is today. Gibraltar was a major Royal Navy base throughout the Napoleonic Wars, the 19th century, and both world wars. It played an important role in Britain's war against the Axis in the Mediterranean, even though Hitler made plans to capture it. Any British relief fleet sent to Malta, in much the same way they sent reliefs to Gibraltar in 1782, were sent from Gibraltar. They had to send fleets to save Malta from the Axis. The people of Gibraltar have consistently voted to remain part of the United Kingdom, although who knows whether Brexit will change that, it's too early to tell. Either way, the Rock of Gibraltar is still British, and Spain is still not happy about it. They blockaded Gibraltar from the land side as recently as the 1960s and 70s to try and force Britain to give Gibraltar up. But it didn't work. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? This strange little mountain, the Pillar of Hercules, was the site of the largest and last great land battle of the American Revolutionary War. Gotta wonder if the Minutemen at Lexington ever dreamed that the shot heard round the world would unleash fire on the rock. 
Thanks a bunch for listening today. Hope you had a good time and hopefully you learned not to use sand as armor against heated cannonballs. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it during the next Relief Convoy. Remember to eat your limes and lemons so you don't get scurvy. Check my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com for all today's sources and some additional commentary. I am always available on Facebook or on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod, or you can email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect. If you've got advice, I'd love to hear it. And if you haven't listened, don't forget the other short round I released today. Hear all about a Spanish general and the crazy band of renegades he led to victory on the Gulf Coast in the Revolutionary War. Learn all about Bernardo de Galvez, the Spanish Lafayette, today on Unknown Soldiers. (laughs) 